Listen, I'm not advocating or You're just informing. confessing. I am informing on a topic of which I am aware. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church, where Pastor Matt Brown gives you real answers to tough questions from the Bible. I'm excited today because it's, this is the Battle of the Sexes edition. We've got myself, Justin Party, your good friend, Pastor Matt, you're right over here. Yep, the PMB. And directly across the way, we've got both Stephanie Keene and Melody Workman. Yeah. Yes. What's Bring up, ladies? The ladies? Yep. How exactly. do you spell that? Trouble. That is awesome. Well, hey, uh, we're so glad to have you guys listening into the debrief. Uh, We love uh, taking your questions and getting them here to Pastor Matt Brown. It's always uh, really fun. So if you've got questions about what we've been reading or what Pastor Matt's been preaching about here at Sandals Church on the weekends, you can send those into us at sandalschurch.com slash the debrief. You can get at us at our Facebook page. Just search for the debrief podcast and send us a message and we will get your questions here on the show. The only thing that makes us more excited though, than you guys sending in questions for Pastor Matt to answer is when you leave us five-star reviews in the iTunes store. And we've got a few more five-star reviews to share with you guys. We do. The first one comes from Disney Diane. I already, already I already love her. I'm wearing Mickey fun. mouse on my socks, shirt yes, and are. hat. So you Diane, are. what up? Hiya, pal. <laughs> Thanks for that, Justin. All right. Disney Diane says, what a terrific podcast to learn more about God, ourselves, and being real. I look forward to the new episode each week. Thank you for the special approach to reach us. You're welcome. I feel like you should have said you're welcome, Pastor Matt, but... Yeah, I, I'm still phased by your Mickey Mouse voice. <laughs> I got <laughs> a lot of practice, dude. Four kids freak me out. Four kids, dude. Hey, yeah. okay, we I got one more. I want to hear the Holy Spirit's voice. You want to hear Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have one more five-star review from, I guess, Miss Chris Cruz. Yes. She says, I've been binge listening to this for the last few days. Yes, it is so awesome. interesting. I have replaced watching TV, internet browsing, and even music just to listen to all of the episodes. I am new to Sandals Church and excited to learn more. Mm, Excellent. Amen and welcome. Indeed. Maybe awesome. Pastor Matt can sing some more so you don't miss out on too much music. Oh, yeah, music. she's missing yeah, out I on music right now. I think we lose right like a thousand listeners every time I sing. Time. Not a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, willing to pick, I'm willing to pick up the mantle and uh, start singing on behalf. Well, hey, we are going to tackle your questions about Acts chapter 13 today. But before we do that, we got some awesome follow-up questions from stuff that's been happening around Sandals Church and past episodes of the podcast. Our first question comes from Michelle. So Michelle said, we celebrated communion during the sermon on Acts 10. And Michelle asks, why do we not have communion on a regular basis? We came from a church that did this on the first Sunday of the month. And our small group was discussing this and was wondering if we could get an answer. Yeah, so the reality is... um, you know, every church does it differently. At Sandals Church, we have so many non-believers every week. So many people that have never been to church have no idea. And for me, I don't think it's a good strategy to do something that's exclusive. And the reality is the Lord's Supper is exclusive. It's for believers only. It's for those people who have repented of their sins and placed faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't want to invite people to a service where we in front of them say, and now you are separate. Mm-hmm. So that's why. So we, we, we try to do it periodically throughout the year about four times. Um, I think it's something that you can do in your small group on a more regular basis. But again, you have to be aware of non-believers being present. And we need to make sure that we are inclusive of those people who are visiting. Because if, you're, if you've never been to a church the first time, it's really, really awkward and really, really strange, especially when you talk about eating Jesus. That is a very, very bizarre <laughs> thing to process through um, as a non-Christian. For, for those of us who uh, understand the Bible, we understand Christianity, it's a very, very normal thing. And I would 
guess that most churches that do that are very, very small. They know people. They don't have many visitors. They don't, they don't have a lot of new people coming. At Sandals Church, we have more visitors on a weekend than most churches have in the entire building. And mm-hmm. so we need to be aware of them and, and, and we need to not just worship God and pretend they're not there, but we need to worship God and do things that try to include them. And so um, that's why we do it the way that we do it. But I think the Lord's Supper is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. I love doing it every time we do it. I think it's powerful. We just have to make sure we give it enough time to explain what it is and why it is and that people are invited to participate after repentance and faith in Jesus. Totally. Side note, and I have no knowledge of this, but I got to imagine that uh, covering the cost of communion for a church the, uh, the size of ours mm-hmm. is pretty expensive. Because yeah. Yeah. This last weekend, we were almost 8,000. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's a awesome. lot of grapes. Oh, I was thinking about exactly how much money on cost of grapes, but yeah, exactly. Crazy. All right, we got one more follow-up question from Megan, who yeah. sounds like she used to attend Sandals Church. Yes, yeah, she said, you recently talked about people leaving the church because they didn't like the music or preaching and described those as selfish reasons. I moved about six months ago, and I'm having a really hard time finding a church home. It seems that these things that shouldn't matter started mattering, and I'm not even sure what matters anymore. I've grown up in the church serving and in small groups, and this has made for a very uncomfortable season. Any suggestions on what to focus on in finding a new church home? Yeah, the first thing is, is I think all Christians everywhere need to reprioritize. Um, When they talk about moving, we think about the location, we think about our job, we think about opportunities, we think about starting over. And the last thing we think about is the church. Tammy and I, you know, when we retire from Sandals Church, if we move somewhere, we will not move somewhere without first looking what kind of churches are in the area because worship for us and communion with Christians is the most important thing we do as a couple. And so it always amazes me that Christians move first and think about God last. And so what this is tantamount to doing is, oh, hey, if I'm a guy, I found this really hot girl. Uh, She's super smart. She's got a great job, but she's not a Christian. And that's the last thing they consider when it should be the first thing that they consider. So here, the, the reality is, is I can't help you where you're at now. Mm-hmm. I can help those people who are thinking about moving before you move, before you make the leap, man. If, if the place that you're going to worship and where you're going to go to church doesn't play into your uh, thought processes, I, I think that that means God's not first in your life. Mm-hmm. And so first think about, you know, where am I going to go to church? Who are the people that I'm going to hang out? Is there a Bible-believing church that I can be a part of? And certainly... We can have preferences, music, preaching style. I'm not saying that those things um, you know, aren't important at all. I'm just saying that for most people when they leave, it is for very, very selfish reasons, and that's never a good reason to leave a church. However, selecting a church, be selfish when you're picking. You know, Just like when, when you're in the dating process, that's the time to be selfish. Marriage is not the time to be selfish. In the mm-hmm. dating part, it's, you know, okay, do I really want to get involved in this? My point is, after you get married, work it out, stay make it work. And so if you're at Sandals, look, man, I don't like everything at Sandals Church. There's things that happen that frustrate the heck out of me and I'm in charge. So, but I don't just leave every time I don't get my way or I don't like it. I try to work through it Mm. and deal with it because I am just as committed to Sandals Church as I am to my physical family. This is my spiritual family and I have my physical family. That's all I'm trying to say. So I'll pray for you. And the reality is, man, good churches are hard to find and everybody needs to understand that. There isn't a great, amazing church in every town, everywhere. We are blessed at Sandals Church that God has given us an opportunity to worship Him in a place that encourages us to be real, not only with Him, but with each other. And that's a real blessing. Yeah. 
I love um, Megan's heart. She asked a follow-up question related to this saying, how should I handle tithing without currently having a church home? Yeah, send it here, man. We had a rough <laughs> August, man. We, 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 we've been blowing the doors off this year. I don't know what happened in August. People took a tithe vacation. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but send it here. Until you find another church, send it here. Um, and let me just say this, Megan, here's the reality is you could start a small group in whatever town you're in, invite people to watch online, and you can start a little church right there in your town, wherever you are, bring people together. What makes a church is not just your friends, but it's people that gather together under the authority of the local church with intent to carry out the mission of Jesus and the commandments of Jesus. And you can do that right wherever you are. Um, you know, we have uh, almost a thousand people on a weekend that watch online from home. Bring people over and make that happen and make it a community. Um, and that might be a little scary, but you can do it. So if, if there's not a church that you can be a part of, make Sandals Church a part of your community. And that's what I would do. Hey, that's totally true. And you know what? If that's something you're interested in, Megan, interested in, Megan uh, I'd be happy to help point you in the right direction and get you equipped with some things. Send me an email. I'm Justin, uh, prd at sandalschurch.com. And... Uh, We'll get you pointed in the right direction there. So that was awesome. Thanks, guys, for sending in your questions. Don't be confused, though. The show's not over. We're jumping into Acts chapter 13. Uh, if you've got questions about the things that we're reading or the messages that are coming in, we love to get those, uh, and that is where we're going to jump in. Man, Acts chapter 13 was is long. Yeah, There's it's like long, an epic but it's sermon. awesome. Yeah, incredible. Super good. So it kicks off um, at the very beginning. Barnabas and Saul are commissioned out for missions. Yeah, so in verses 1 through 3, it says, Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Manian, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Quick little note, you just nailed all those uh, crazy yeah, names. Well thank done. you, well thank done. you. You well know, they told me done. a few episodes ago on this podcast to just do it with confidence and mm -hmm. own it, and I, that's yeah. what I did. That was <laughs> so like how you. my wife likes her steak. Well done. That's the first time both guys here have been putting a compliment over there on the female side, so ladies, think about the things. Take we're doing that, great. receive that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're just going to receive it. We just oh, like okay. to receive kindness as the women of Sandwich okay, Church. Fair so. Um, yeah, well, we were cultivating it. <laughs> oh, wow. And you should be doing that as well. Yeah, good job. Good job, guys. We're proud of you. All right, so these guys were already fasting before they even hear from God, and then God speaks, and they fast some more. Should fasting be a bigger deal for Christians? Should we be doing that more? I don't think we talk a lot about fasting. Yeah, yeah, we don't talk a lot about it. The reality is it's, it's an essential part of the Christian life. Um, I think that we should do it when we desperately need to hear from God. A couple of years ago, um, I was initially diagnosed with a tumor in my throat and it looked like throat cancer and I had to undergo throat surgery and I couldn't speak for a period of time. And so I really felt like I needed to hear from God. So I actually drove out to the desert, um, fasted from speaking. I didn't speak for 10 days. I took a vow of silence and I also did not eat uh, for seven days. No wow. food, I had some water, but I didn't eat any food for seven days. And uh, it was a difficult time. But in that time, I heard God audibly speak to me during that time and God said, I care about your character, not your career. Because my, my, my question to God was, how on earth could you call me to preach if you're going to take my voice? Mm. And um, of course, that's right at the time when you know the internet really started getting going and I'm Googling all these pastors who had throat cancer and lost their voices forever and couldn't ever preach. So obviously it happens to people. And I'm like, oh my gosh, God, how could you, how could you do this to me? And uh, I heard God speak. And so fasting in that instance really, really uh, worked for me. But God doesn't owe us an answer when we fast. What, what it's doing is we're saying no to our physical desires so that we can increase our awareness of our spiritual desires. 
and you need to understand this. Your physical desires, according to Galatians 5, and your spiritual desires are always in conflict. Mm. They don't go together. Almost never do those two things coincide. And so we need to learn to listen to the spirit just like we learn to listen to the flesh. We got to listen to both. And our stomachs communicates to us all day long. You know, I'm hungry. It's time to eat. And so the question is, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us? Mm -hmm. And so you try to minimize those physical desires so that you can listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying. And it turns out the Holy Spirit had something to say. So I think fasting is a great thing to do. Um, I wouldn't start off like, you know, Jesus, you know, he fasted for 40 days. I've had friends who've attempted that and got really sick and had to go to the hospital. So the longest I've ever fasted is, um, I think I made it eight days with no food. And um, I felt like God said, stop at that point. But I've met people who've gone longer than that. Uh, and there's different ways to fast, but, um, you know, fast for a meal, fast for a day, um, do that and, and just prepare yourself. It is not easy. And actually the first day uh, is always the hardest. And so um, I like to fast for a couple of days when I do it. But, you know, again, I'm trying to get people to stop sinning and doing things like that. And so I don't have a lot of time to talk about fasting because I'm trying to get people to stop divorcing, cheating on each other, you know, being drug addicts. That's kind of where sandals flows. <laughs> right. You know, we're, we're, we're an ER, you know, we're not like a healthy living church. <laughs> so, that's right. So those, those first couple of verses, when um, Barnabas and Saul are getting commissioned and sent out, it talks about how these guys laid their hands on them. What, what's that all about? Because First Timothy chapter 5, verse 22 says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Is that something we need to be careful with? Or Oh, yeah, and I, I blew it early on at Sandals Church. I laid hands on a lot of people that I think had a lot of uh, physical qualities, um, personalities, and it turned out to be a disaster for our church because they weren't spiritually mature. And what the Bible actually says, Paul actually says, is they will become full of pride, and I've seen it over and over and over again. Some people can handle uh, the esteem and honor that comes with the position of spiritual authority. Uh, the old word for pastor was reverend, which means reverence. Mm. Um, I think we've lost a sense of reverence in our society completely. But some people, the little encouragement and esteem they get from the position of pastor goes to their head and it destroys them immediately. So we need to be very, very careful and very, very slow on the laying on of hands. Um, but they do do it here, and I think they picked correctly. Paul and Barnabas, pretty, pretty legit. two pretty legit dudes. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Okay, so now they're going out on their first missionary journey together. Yep, verses four and five say, Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit, and John Mark went with him as their assistant. John Mark is like Barnabas's nephew. Yes, is that right? yeah. they're related. Um, so you talked a little bit in your sermon about his importance. Can you tell us some more about his long-term role in the history of Christianity? Yeah, I mean, he takes a, a real important role, um, ultimately writes the gospel of Mark, which we are all thankful and grateful for, uh, communicates the sermons of Peter. And it's interesting, John Mark got to be the travel companion of Paul and Peter. I mean, the two most important theological figures uh, really uh, in the gospel. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. The apostle that, you know, Christ built his church on Peter and the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he got to see both of those. Uh, it's interesting, Peter does eventually make his way to Rome and preaches powerfully to Rome and we think ultimately is uh, crucified upside down for his faith. But John Mark, man, is a major, major player. Uh, he falls out of favor at some point with the apostle Paul. And we're gonna see about that in the coming chapters and Paul doesn't want to have anything to do with this young guy because he blows it. Barnabas encourages grace. The, the, the disagreement is so profound between Paul and Barnabas, they actually go their own ways. Hmm. So That's intense. Yeah. yeah. 
So in verses 6 through 8, it says that afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. So when I hear the word sorcerer, I'm thinking like Dungeons and Dragons, sending away the Demogorgon, all that yeah, kind of Gandalf, stuff. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so is that right? Like, is that the kind of sorcerer he was? Yeah, we don't know the specific kind of, you know, magic that he proclaimed to do, but... Um, yeah, that's that's exactly right. This was a conjurer of spells, uh, a pronouncer of words, and these are things that are condemned in Scripture. We are not to rely on potions. We're not to rely on drugs. We're not to rely, um, you know. And think of you know even like Indians. You know, they they smoke the peyote to encounter God, and and many people say, well, I feel so much more spiritual, you know, when I smoke dope. God says, don't do that because those things actually hinder our connection with him. They don't enhance us. And they actually may open ourselves up to something else. So potions, spells, words, um, you know, these things are, are things that are to be avoided. And that's what this guy did. So, you know, whether he had a wand and a cape and had really cool long hair like Dumbledore, we don't know. <laughs> but um, he was an enemy of all that was good, Paul says. Yeah, what about staffs? Am I allowed to walk around carrying yeah, one Moses of those here one. at the weekend? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I actually have one in my office. You can borrow. Yes. Yeah. He uses that to rebuke me at times. Oh, yeah, there you so, go. Um, so it also says that this sorcerer attached himself to the governor. Was that normal for people in high leadership to have like a sorcerer? Yeah, it's side? normal now. I mean, I mean there's somebody in Barack Obama's <laughs> ear. There's somebody in Hillary's ear. There's somebody in Donald Trump's ear. You know, are those people followers of God or are they followers of something else? All throughout history, great leaders and people in positions of power have needed influencers, people to speak into their lives. Um, because they need to, uh, you know, get good advice. And so historically, throughout every region, they rely on the supernatural for guidance. And why is that? Like, we think that's so silly, because at least in the ancient world, rulers could say this, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, they feel like they have to have every answer, you know, like every president has to be, you know, awesome on economics, um, awesome on, on everything, you know, like the libertarian candidate, when he was yeah. on news, they're like, you know, how do you feel about Aleppo? And everybody rips the guy because he's like, What's Aleppo? Well, mm -hmm. it's a town in Syria where there's a huge refugee crisis, but we expect these people to know everything. And the reality is we live in a complex world. And so at least the ancient world could say, I don't know, you know, throw your dice, cut the chicken's head off, whatever <laughs> it is that you do to figure out the will of the gods or the future. And so this guy, um, I think his name was Sergius Paulus. I think that was his name, um, ha has been, had bar Jesus attached to him. And it's weird because Romans had this weird fascination with Jews. Hmm. Like Romans, you know, you've heard of like Roman orgies and, you know, these parties. So they were these extremely like bizarrely sexual, sensual, drunks, drug addicts. They partied like that. And the Jews were these prudes that didn't participate in any of that. But the, but the Romans had this healthy respect for them. Like we don't get you, but we appreciate you. Hmm. And so a lot of Jews had, had positions of power, even like the historian Josephus and all his writings, the Romans as they're destroying Israel, hey, let's let this guy write things down. So they have an appreciation for the Jews. And so Sergius Paulus gets the best of both worlds. He gets the Jewish purity in Bar-Jesus, and he gets the nutty Romanness of, you know, I'm going to cut this head off or look at this bowl of blood or whatever it is. He gets the best of both worlds. Hmm. And this guy named Bar-Jesus becomes a very, very powerful influencer in his life. So yeah, it was normal. Got it. Okay, so verse nine says, Saul, also known as Paul, 
Let's hold up here a second. What's the switching of this guy's name? Yeah, I hear Pete Christians say all the time um, that God changed his name. That's not in the Bible. I don't know where people got that from. Christians say stupid things all the time. That's just not what it says. Maybe they smoked Thank the Thank you, for the laugh. Yeah, um, he, had, he had multiple names. So I said in church this weekend, this was his Roman name. I'm wrong. It's his Greek name. Paulos is Greek, and it means little, which that's awesome, hmm. right? He talked about, in my weakness, I am strong. His name means little. Wow. And uh, in the Greek, and so he shifts from that. So his Jewish name, Saul, he's named after uh, the first king of Israel, King Saul, who was king of Israel for over 40 years. And, and you know, Saul gets a bad rap towards the end of his life, but the reality is he did a lot of great things mm-hmm. uh, in the history of uh, Israel. Great warrior, great strategist, gave them confidence, did, did a lot of things. Got a little nutty towards the end, throwing spears at uh, David, but, um, you know, pooping in caves, stuff like that, <laughs> weird stuff. But... Um, uh, I just lost my mind with pooping in caves. Yeah. Like, <laughs> lost all name? of us. Me too. Yeah. How, how Saul was still a decent guy. Yeah, Saul was still a decent Which, guy. So he had two names. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. And he probably had two Roman names. A pre-nomen name, which would have been his formal name, and a nomen name, which would have been his simple name. And we don't know what either of those are. But as a Roman citizen, he would have had Roman names. But throughout the Roman Empire, um, you know, some city-states still spoke Greek because Greek is still the dominant language um, like for example, today, the world's dominant language is English. Even though England really isn't a dominant power in any way, shape or form in the world, English is still really the known and most important language in the world today. And so Greek, although they'd been defeated by Rome and Rome is the power, Greek is still the language. And so he can get away with Paul and that's accepted everywhere he goes. So. Got it. When you say Roman name, is that just like something they could pronounce or? Yeah, yeah. For example, you know, we t- you know, you've traveled. I know Stephanie's traveled. I don't know. You've been to Mexico, right? Ethiopia. Oh, Ethiopia. That's right. That's recent. But, you know, there are some names, like even your, your son's name. Like what's his, what's his Ethiopian name? Mehedetab. Mehedetab. But you call him? Medi. Medi, right. Because we can say Medi. And saying his name is mm-hmm. difficult. And so in the ancient world, you would have multiple names that you would use to help people be able to relate to you wherever you went. Because it's just, it's, you know, right. there are just some names that, you know, people can't say. And if you've ever traveled... You know, we make fun of, in a wrong way, people who come to America and they don't pronounce things the way that we pronounce. But I always tell people, you try going to their country and speak their language. Right. It's like, I mean, there's, there, there are sounds that people make that we, we can't make and right. we don't make in the English language. And so it just makes, it, it, it just again shows Paul's understanding of God's heart for the nations. I'm no longer going to call myself the name I was given by my parents. Mm. I'm going to call myself Paul because my mission is to the Gentiles. It's pretty powerful. That's awesome. Yeah, so then Paul looks at the sorcerer and says, you son of the devil. I know, I love that. Yeah, it makes me feel better for how I reprimand my kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. It's interesting that Paul is now rebuking this man and making him blind when back in Acts 9, he was blinded by God. Do you think there's any significance or is that coincidence? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's hilarious and it just shows God's sense of humor. But right, Paul um, thought he could see and God struck him blind. Bar-Jesus thinks he can see and so Paul strikes him blind. So I think there's a, there's a correlation there um, that's certainly hilarious. And, and again, his name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, and Paul calls him son of the devil. Yeah. I mean, you are not, you, are, you have betrayed your Jewish faith. You have alienated yourself, um, not just from Jesus, but from from God, from the God of Abraham and Isaac, you're a traitor to your own race. And mm-hmm. he just he just lays it out, man. You have betrayed everything. And so uh, pretty powerful rebuke, but he was full of the Holy Spirit, man. And God was like, yep, 
We'll blind him. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so Rick had a question on this passage too. He says, Paul calls out this guy for twisting the truth. Why do you hold back from calling out Mormons, Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Muslims? Yeah, because I think, again, what's my role in the church on the weekends? It's to, to provide an inclusive environment. And um, I think Mormons are good people. I think Jehovah Witnesses get evangelism way more than Christians do. I wish our mm-hmm. people were willing to spend their Saturdays going door to door telling people about Jesus. So, um, and what was the other one? Muslims? Yeah. Yeah. And Mormons. So and- I, I think that people believe what they're raised in. And so here's the thing. When a, if, a, if a Muslim wants to sit down and have a real conversation, a Mormon, uh, a Jehovah Witness, or anybody else wants to have a real conversation and they're actually seeking, absolutely, um, you know, I'll sit down and point out the differences between our faith, but I've just found, man, I would much rather spend my time focusing on people who believe they're far from God and need to repent of their sins and get right. And so that that's just been... That's just been my strategy. And we do have Mormons in our church. We do have ex-Muslims in our church. We do have ex-Jehovah Witnesses in our church who've been radically saved by the strategy that I've employed. And again, I, I think that you, you win people with not hitting them over the head with where they're wrong. I think the church did that for 30 or 40 years. And all it did was embolden Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and, and everybody else. And what we've got to look for is our common ground. Do you, know, do, do you need to repent of your sins? What does that look like? And you try to work from there and try to get them to understand um, why traditional Christianity is the right way and maybe their version of Christianity is the wrong way. And so um, that's just my strategy. And I, again, I, I think you get people to listen to you with kind words rather than words making fun of their traditions and the way that they were raised you know, or whatever. And, and the truth is a lot of people who call themselves Christians would be Mormons, Jehovah Witness, or Muslim if that's mm-hmm. the way they were raised. Mm-hmm. And you need to ha- lose this aura of superiority and just praise God by his grace, by his grace, you've been saved and come to the faith uh, that is in Jesus Christ through the repentance of your sins and faith in him. And so we just all need to just be so thankful that we have the privilege of of knowing him. But you know, I, I don't say that those religions are the right way. I'm not saying that we're the same way. We're not. We, 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 we believe different things. But in this society, where America is going, the reality is we're going to need those people um, to function as persecution for religious people in America becomes more and more real. And that's where we're heading. You know, if this next Supreme Court judge does not see religious freedom in the way that it's traditionally been interpreted, um, and there are those judges who believe that the Constitution is a living, breathing document that can change, and that's very, very scary for us mm-hmm. because the founding fathers believed that they, the Constitution's purpose is to protect people from the abuses of government. And if that shifts and if that changes, Sandals Church could lose its tax-free status, which could affect the way we worship, how we gather, all of those things. And we're going to need Mormons. We're going to need Jehovah Witnesses. We're going to need Muslims who also in America have a right to worship God as they see fit. And we're yeah. going to need those people in this fight against uh, government religious oppression, which may be coming. I hope it, I hope it doesn't happen. I pray that it doesn't happen, but, you know, it might. Yeah, just a side note, I was thinking about there's a Jehovah's Witness lady who comes to our house to visit my wife at least three times a month and sits down on the porch and they have like long conversations. And uh, Lindy just plays a really slow game with her, you know, asking questions um, and then just picking up on the things that the lady says, digging her and slowly talking about um the Bible and God as she is, understands it through the lens of uh, Christianity. And uh, that lady keeps coming back. You know, it's literally been for probably over a year. Yeah, that's I think, amazing. I just think it's there's something to 
playing that game, not, I don't mean game, but like just being loving and sensitive to where this lady has been coming from that, I mean, when you talked about the lady in the, uh, hardware store that God was trying yeah. to do something, I'm convinced of the same thing about this Jehovah's yeah, Witness absolutely. who keeps coming to visit my wife. So now Paul is getting ready to take off on another journey here. Verse 13 says, Paul and his companions left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. There John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. So you hinted about this before, but John Mark has left now. Do we know why? Or yeah, we don't for? know why, but something happened. My, my I think, uh, best guess is that he just wasn't okay with all the Gentiles being saved, that this was offending his Jewish nature. We have to remember in Acts 15, next week, um, or in two weeks, this will be decided uh, definitively. But the church hasn't made a decision on what do we do with all these Gentiles that are becoming followers of Christ? They're not exactly sure how to handle this. And oh, by the way, the numbers are staggering. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why today, when you think about how many non-Jewish people are Christians versus Jewish people are Christians, I mean, you can see it, it, there was momentum here and there was a hunger by lost people to be saved. And they're just coming in in droves and Christians or excuse me, Jews are worried, this is going to change our religion forever. This is going to change our way of life forever. And guess what? They're right. Mm. It was. You know, just like Sandals Church has changed over the years uh, as more and more people have come. And people say, well, I just don't like how the church has changed. How can you not change when you go from 50 to 5,000? Yeah. How can you not change? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, the reality is numbers of people change things. And, totally. you know, when 99% of the world is not Jewish and they're all being saved, it's going to impact and affect the way you worship, the way you connect, and the way that your mm -hmm. life is. So, and Jews liked the way their life was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They didn't want it to change. Okay, so then in verses 16 to 41, Paul is talking to the Jews, and he preaches a sermon really similar to what Stephen preached a few chapters ago. And he basically walks through the history of the Jewish faith, talks about the life and the death of Jesus. What is Paul doing here exactly? Yeah, Paul is making the case, and he's just a genius. And, and we get a first glimpse here. This is like the pre uh, the prequel to Romans. This is the first glimpse of Paul's understanding in his theology. Mm -hmm. He's laying out, look, this is what God has done. And he's affirming that the Jewish God is the right God, that, that Yahweh, the God of Israel is the right God, that God has a unique covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God has uniquely appointed King David to rule forever over Israel, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these new pro of of all these prophecies. Christianity is not a new religion; it is the fulfillment of ancient Judaism, and that they should know this, and that they should understand this. And what's interesting is, initially, they are at least intrigued by this. They're not opposed to it mm -hmm. because Paul has a case; he has a real, real point. And it's not ultimately until all the Gentiles get excited about it because you notice he addresses them as men of Israel and God fears. Mm -hmm. So there are people there who, again, the ancient world was intrigued by Judaism. Um, like for example, I went to um, this Jewish museum in Los Angeles a couple years ago with one of my kids for a, a, a vacation. And she made this statement, Judaism has never tried to proselytize the world. That is make people Jewish. Mm -hmm. She said that statement. I was like, not true, not true. Uh, right up till Christianity, Ju Judaism was the fastest growing religion within the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And they had a formula for how you could convert, which included circumcision. You know, so you've got you've to eat like a Jew, you've got to worship like a Jew on the Sabbath, and you have to circumcise all the men in your house over the age of eight days old. That's what it meant to convert. So she was just wrong. And she said, well, I don't believe that's true. I said, did you ever read the book of Jonah? Right? 
The book of Jonah is calling the entire city nation of Nineveh right. to repent and place their faith in God. So, so God does Which, this. by the way, is not just from the Christian Bible, it's from the... Yeah, from the Jewish, Jewish Bible. Bible. And that's why I didn't quote a Christian Bible. But, yeah. um, and Jesus refers to this when he says, you will go over land and sea to make a convert, and when you do, you make them twice as the son of a devil as you are. Well, Why would Jesus say that? Because they were making converts mm-hmm. and converting people to really what's impossible. It's impossible to keep the law. Nobody could. Nobody can. And so um, that's why we need Jesus to die on the cross for us. Totally. So one of the things that Paul says in verse 39 that's a part of his sermon here, I think is maybe a little bit controversial, it seems like. It says, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So does this mean the law forgives us of some sins or... Yeah, What's no, that, that's, that's not what it means. But there are some German theologians about 150 years ago that first kind of got this ball rolling that somehow the law forgave us of some sins, but not all sins. And that is just, that is, this, here's the problem. The sentence structure is not great. Like, I don't want to criticize Luke because my sentence structures aren't great. <laughs> it, it's a little choppy. You know, like right. we all, when we write, some sentences are great. Some sentences aren't particularly clear. Even though the Bible's inspired, it's still written by Luke. And so here's here's a sentence that maybe could have, he could have been a little more clear at, but I think he's trying to summarize and what he's saying. And the best way to interpret this verse is, look, Jesus did what the law couldn't do. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is the law taught you about God. The law also taught you about your own sinfulness. And so in that it was good. However, it was unable to do ultimately what you needed, which was to be saved from your sins. And so in that only Christ Jesus can do that in a way that the law could never do. And Mm -hmm. so yeah, the verse structure is just a little choppy and it's a little confusing. And you got to be careful um, when you read through the Bible because every now and then you're going to find a verse that hangs you up a little bit. And you're like, oh, wait a minute, what, is, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. So, and that's just one of those verses. Got it. Okay, so this next chunk starting in verse 44 is about Paul starting to bring this message to the Gentiles. It says, the following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear him preach the word of God. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, and he quotes from Isaiah, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. So this seems like a pretty big moment for Paul here. Does he feel like he's got the authority that he needs to just drop the Jews and move on to the Gentiles? Yes and no. I I think he's frustrated here. I think Luke has accurately um, communicated the emotion of the event. I mean, Paul has laid it out. It's very, very clear. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to God but by him. And they reject it. And, and, And listen to what Luke says. Not because they disagreed with what Paul said, but because they were jealous Mm. and they want to remain that special person. And we need to all as Christians be so aware of the power of jealousy and the evilness of jealousy. Mm -hmm. It's one of those sins that we just don't talk about. Envy and jealousy is one of the ugliest things that can ever enter your heart. And the reality is we all struggle with every day. We feel envious of people's giftedness. We feel envious of being replaced. We feel envious of people being younger than us, better looking than us, older than us, wiser than us. We're jealous of the giftedness that God places in others. And what these things do is they, if we give in to jealousy, it causes us to then ultimately be fighting against the movement of God. And Paul's just frustrated, man, because this is the very same emotion and sin that ultimately led to the death of Jesus. 
they didn't kill Jesus because they disagreed with him. They killed him because they were jealous and they saw the crowds. They saw themselves losing control of the people. It's the same reason Bar Jesus doesn't want Sergius Paulus to get saved because he doesn't want to lose influence. And he's envious of the power with which Paul speaks. He recognizes that Paul's smarter, Paul's brighter, and what Paul's saying is true. And remember, what did it say about Sergius Paulus? He was a bright man. He was an intelligent man. And he knew that his sorcerer had just been bested. Mm -hmm. He knew. The Jews here in this counter, they see that they're not the sharpest people anymore in town. They're not the wisest. And who is compared to the apostle Paul, right? And, and so, you know, if you're a Jewish person listening, Paul's Jew, so don't, don't take that as an anti-Semitic statement. Paul is perhaps, you know, other than Jesus Christ, the, the smartest Jew who's ever lived. The guy's yeah. brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when I was in Israel talking with uh, one of our Jewish guides who's not a Christian, I said, so what do you make of this whole Christian thing? And she said, I think Paul was a really smart guy. Wow. So she takes his intelligence and uses it against him but she doesn't say he's an idiot. Mm. So he's bested them and they're frustrated. And, and people, so in the Greek world, right? Thinking, reason, logic, debate, all of those things were appreciated. Yeah. And that's why the gospel starts spreading yeah. because it's like, oh my gosh, he's smarter. I'm going with him. Whereas <laughs> in the Jewish world, those things, the, the tradition was more important than reason, logic. And so eventually that'll shift and you know, Jewish Christians will use those things to defend their faith but for right now, man, they've been bested. And so they're just upset. And so I think this is an issue. I think Paul speaks in the moment, but the reality is, and so there's gonna be some people that say, they're gonna disagree with me, but the reality is the very next chapter, guess where he goes? Right back to the synagogue. Mm -hmm. So he continues this pattern of going to the Jews first, then the Gentiles, going to the Jews first, why? Because Romans tells us he wants so desperately for Jews to come to know Christ. And it breaks his heart. And he actually says in Romans, that he would give up his own soul for his people. Mm. Wow. If, if he could, if there was a way yeah. he would do it because he wants Jews to come to Christ. And so um, it's just an amazing passage. And I hope you guys can read through this a couple of times. It's truly profound uh, what's happening here and what's taking place. And I wish that we had that kind of love for our lost friends and family mm-hmm. that Paul has. Totally. Well, so then this, this question comes from Stephen's group. If the Jews had accepted the word of God, would it not have been offered to the Gentiles? No, I, yeah, that, that's not what he means. What, what he's saying is, I think the Jews would have become a part of the offering to the Gentiles. Mm. Their role, according to Isaiah, was to be the light. Mm-hmm. They were to be the light. Now the light has come, Yeah. and they need to spread that light and share that light, but they're not. So what, what he's saying is, they are refusing to be participants in God's mission. So we gotta go to Ephesians where we look at the mystery of God revealed. What is the purpose of the book of Ephesians? It is the mystery of God revealed. I think the word mystery is used four or five times in almost every chapter of the book of Ephesians. And what is the mystery? The Gentiles are included in the plan of God. And so Jews are to spread that message. And by the way, Jews are spreading that message. Jesus is Jewish. The 12 apostles are Jewish. Paul's Jewish. Barnabas is Jewish. John Mark is Jewish. So some Jews are spreading this light, but the vast majority of them will reject this because what they believe God's plan for the world is to make everybody Jewish. That's not God's plan. Yeah. God's plan for the world is to save every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And what's amazing is Isaiah never met Jesus, but mm. he got it yeah. Yeah. and he mm. saw it. Isaiah is the first prophet in the Bible to see, I mean, God's plan. When you read Isaiah in the 60s, 
he sees the new heaven. He sees the new earth. And what does he see? Not that it's filled with Jews. It is filled with Jews and every tribe, every tongue, every nation is coming to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. It is an inclusive gospel that goes beyond racism, goes beyond you know, uh, culture superiority and says, God wants everybody to be included in this. And it's, it's, Isaiah has a fantastic vision. Um, and that's one of the reasons they um, killed him. Isaiah is another great prophet that is slaughtered by the Jewish people. Wow. So um, it's sad, but he saw it. So the Gentiles hear all of this message from Paul and verse 48 says, they were glad and thanked the Lord for his message and all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. So Stephen's group wrote in and also asked, does this mean that not everyone is chosen for eternal life? Right. So this is something we're going to get get into when we get into the book of Romans next year. And ultimately, God willing, we make our way to the book of Ephesians. The Bible teaches this concept of election this concept of predestination and, and this concept of, of being chosen. It is something that is in the Bible, whether you agree with those theological statements or not, it's something that's through and through the Bible. Can um, you just define election, predestination really yeah, quickly? So, so some, some people believe that God has already chosen all those who will be saved. And some people believe that people choose. And so they get in these two camps and they fight about this. And I, I just think it's ridiculous in both ways because whether you, you believe in predestination or we choose, Everybody says you have to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. So, so for me, the point is moot because unless you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, whether you were chosen or God chooses, you're lost. So, yeah. so I, I preach the gospel. Here's why I think election is so important. And we need to understand it in its cultural context and, and, and in the context of understanding the ethnic challenges that Paul faces. Paul is fighting an uphill battle. And here's the battle the Jews are not embracing the fact that Gentiles are included. And Paul has to state from all time, from the beginning of time, before mm-hmm. the foundation of the world, Gentiles were chosen, elected, predestined to share in the glory of God through salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's his point. And so as long as we stay there, regardless of what camp you end up in, I think you're a biblical church and you can stay there. But we need to understand what Paul is saying is, in Christ, you're no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, no longer male, no longer female. Now, does that mean you you girls aren't women? No, you're women. Does that mean you're not a man? No, you're a man. What it means is, yeah, what it means is the gospel has done something so powerful that this chasm that separated us by sex, this chasm that separated us by mm-hmm. race has now been erased through Christ and God is drawing all of us. And that has been his plan from the very beginning that has been what has been predestined. That is what has been elected and chosen as that these two who were opposed to each other would now be won by the blood of Christ. And so um, election is something that is certainly there and, and it's something that is taught and it's something that's absolutely essential and important. But what we must understand here is those who were appointed were Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So who was appointed? Abraham was appointed. Mm-hmm. Isaac was appointed. Jacob was appointed. David was appointed. They are appointed just like Jews. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so important. We are co-heirs of the gospel of Christ. We are participants. We are children of God. That's why a Gentile kid can sing the song, Father Abraham. Mm -hmm. A Gentile can do that because Paul will tell us in Romans that that Abraham became a child of God, not by blood, but by faith, Mm -hmm. through faith in Christ. And that's what makes us children of God. Um, it's not just your ancestry. It's why Jesus says, you know, that I could raise up children from these rocks right here. John warned Jews 
The ax is already at the root of the tree. God can raise up children from himself. Mm. And the only reason the Jewish people got to be children of God was by faith. Yeah. And the reason we get to be children of God is by faith. Faith in the one true God that ultimately revealed Jesus Christ to be his one true son. And that is the only way that all of us will be adopted into the kingdom of God. And so, again, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, let me say this. God is way more a part of your salvation than you will ever know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You are not saved a part of the wooing and the drawing of the Holy Spirit. You are not saved by my words. You are not saved by my actions, my sermons. You are saved by the Holy Spirit drawing you. Mm-hmm. That's what we read Jeremiah 31.3 this weekend. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Mm-hmm. I love how the NLT ends it, and I have drawn you to mm-hmm. myself. Yeah. So um, God has redeemed me and saved me, and he has pursued me. My entire life, he has pursued me. And I think that that's important that we give God credit for that process. Um, just like the apostle Paul does. He says, we're saved by faith, and this is not of ourselves. Right? Paul's on his way to Damascus, and God strikes him dead. So we need to give God credit for the process. He's not just in the business of saving us, but he's in the business of wooing us. Mm. I don't think as a church it's important that we spell out exactly what that means because then that divides the church. And it's so sad to me that the doctrine of election, which was meant to unify, has actually become a doctrine that separates. Yeah. And that's just that just shows you the sinfulness of human beings. Mm-hmm. The very thing that is meant, like baptism, we, we do this all the time. The things that are meant to bring us together, we take those things, we turn it into theology and it separates, it separates us. The doctrine of election is this inclusive, beautiful doctrine that says, I have been chosen. God has picked me and we've taken that. And now we got to talk about what that looks like. And the truth is, we're all going to find out what that looks like on the other side of heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, until now, until then, here's the truth of the gospel. God chooses you and you have a choice to make. Yeah. Those, those are two realities that are, that are both true in the Bible. And if you overemphasize one without the other, you're not preaching the gospel. God is choosing, God is electing, God is predestined, and you have a choice to make. And that choice has eternal consequences. Um, and that's why we need to preach the gospel. And, and I, I just don't feel the need to elaborate any further on, on that, but, but election's a real thing and, and God appointed real people. And it gives you confidence. Again, when you're sharing your faith, you gotta know that you can't save anybody. God's gonna save that person. Right. And um, it is with that confidence that Paul goes to the Gentiles and he knows, he knows that God has chosen. He knows that God has elected and he is going to preach that gospel and people are gonna be radically saved and we need to go with that confidence. We know in India, as we send missionaries to India, God is already moving, God is already working. Mm -hmm. He is already there, but they will not be saved apart from hearing the gospel. We must preach the gospel. Um, So the same guy who came up with the doctrine of election, the apostle Paul says in Romans 10, it's where we get, get our name, how can they believe in whom they've not heard? Yeah. And how can they hear if no one preaches? And how can someone preach unless they've been sent? As it has been said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We have a part to play in this, and our job is to announce the goodness of Christ yep. so, with the nations. Sorry, I got a little preachy there. That's yeah, good. That's great. That was good. Too bad these microphones are all hooked up and rigged into these boom stands. Could have dropped it. Yeah. <laughs> you can, we can unscrew it. And yeah. You could say hashtag so drops mic. Boom. Yeah. yeah. So after Paul wraps up this speech, it says that then the Jews stirred after up. After Pastor Matt wraps up that answer. Yeah, that's true too. Thank you. <laughs> Mental raise for Justin Party. Oh, good job. Dang it. Ooh, 
Cool. It's okay, ours can still come, Melody, I believe, especially after this question. Uh, it says, Bring then the it. Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. Now, my perception of things back then is that there would not have been such a thing as an influential religious woman. What exactly does that mean here? Yeah, women have always been influencers. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I know we love to live in this world where, you know, women have never had authority, never had a choice. Look, women have always had power. Always, always, always had power. And so they may not have been able to be the king, but they could be the queen. And uh, the reality is here we see, I mean, they, they call it out, influential women in the city. Man, when they turn against Paul, it's over. It's over. And so, uh, again, you know, women have God-given influence, and they can use that for good or they can use that for evil. And, um, you know, my wife is not the pastor of this church, but she has one-on-one time with the pastor of this church, and I listen to her. And so um, that's just the reality. So, yeah, you know, they didn't have maybe some of the rights that, you know, women have today, but they clear, look, they have influence. And the Jews needed them to run Paul and Barnabas out. They couldn't do it without them. So they had to get them stirred up and they were a part of this. And that just shows you women can be stupid too. So, you know, it's not always just men that are idiots. Sometimes you guys join us in our stupidity. So, yeah. So they're, they're um, you know, we don't know who they are, but they were influential, probably wealthy, powerful women in the city um, who may have been heirs to great estates, you know, wealthy contributors to the local whatever. So, Probably their husbands were dead or they were married to powerful husbands. We don't, we don't know who they were, but it's interesting to note. Powerful. Hmm. Okay, so this whole chapter closes. Verse 20, uh, 51 through 52 says, So Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of crazy. Paul and Barnabas just shake the feet off the dust off their feet, reject this town and leave but the believers are filled with joy. Seems like, yes, exactly. seems like things are not going that well now politically for any Christians that would be left behind, but the believers are super excited. And yeah, joyful. well, again, they don't, they don't want the Christians in the town to leave. They want the outsiders to leave. Yeah. So they don't have the authority to run off local residents, but they do have the authority to run off these visitors. So Paul and Barnabas aren't from the town. And, that's, and that is the strategy of the enemy throughout the book of Acts. It's not to get rid of believers in the town. It's to get rid of these agitators. Mm. And so here's the accusation that slips through. So Rome had a policy of acceptable religions and non-acceptable religions. Um, For example, um, the Church of Scientology, a lot of people don't realize this. It's founded in Southern California. Its base is just a couple of miles from us. They went through a real struggle for years and years with the IRS. Is it a real religion or not? And so, and here's, here was the consequence. If it's not a real religion, then it's a taxable entity. If it is a real religion, it receives nonprofit status. This was a huge battle for years and years and years. Um, and so, you know, 2000 years ago, Rome had religions that were acceptable and non-acceptable. And so what they're saying here is, this is the first and the most effective accusation against Christianity is this is a non-acceptable Roman religion. Mm. This is something new and it's something that has not been approved. And they're trying to bring this weird thing to us. And so this is the first real example we see of this is non-Jewish. When Paul's whole argument is, this is the fulfillment of Judaism. We Mm. are a part of you. And so here we see Paul says, I'm leaving you, I'm going to the Gentiles. And you see this rallying cry that this is an unauthorized religion. And therefore this whole thing, we are in danger of rioting. And basically Romans were pretty chill about everything. Rome had a long fuse, but if you rioted, they kill you. (laughs) They kill you, your family, 
you know, everybody. They didn't, they didn't believe in an eye, an, eye, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They, they believe in eye, both your eyes, your mom's eyes, your sister's <laughs> eyes, your cousin's <laughs> eyes. It's always amazing. People always quote that like that's harsh and they don't realize that's actually minimizing the retaliation for a crime. Mm-hmm. So if you gouge my out, I can only gouge your eye out. I can't take Stephanie's and Melody's. Thank right. you. Because yeah, that's how the ancient world worked. I'm going to kill you, your whole family, and everybody else. That's my best mafia voice. Sorry. That was good. I had to look at New Jersey for that. So <laughs> Was yeah. I inspiring? Yeah, you inspired me. Okay. Yeah. I felt criminal when I looked into your eyes. It was good. Um, <laughs> I felt weird. So Yeah, sorry. You felt weird? Yeah, we were from the high desert. All right. What was I saying? Uh, well, you don't even know. <laughs> I'm lost. I'm so lost. Yes, exactly. We were saying something. Oh, yeah, the judge, eye for the eye, eye, was, eye, for an eye. Was, was gracious. Well, so Rome, Rome was not, did not have that yes, philosophy yes. of minimizing <laughs> retaliation, right? They killed everybody. They sold your family into slavery. They raped your women. They hung your men from the streets. I mean, they, w- w- and so they, they, Paul is in danger here of being killed. And that's mm-hmm. the accusation. You're going to see that here pretty quick. They're going right. to try to kill him um, because Rome did not tolerate rioting. Mm. Which is interesting, right? Because in America, we like celebrate it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we're rioting. Rome, you got killed. Okay? So there would be no like Ferguson or whatever in Rome. That, yeah. psh, everybody's dead. Yeah. That's just the way they rolled. Right. They were harsh retaliators. And so, um, and again, that's not a political statement about Ferguson, except for the fact that they did riot. So don't send me your hate mail. <laughs> um, in Rome, you didn't riot. Because mm-hmm. when you did, you died. I mean, you could have rioted, but it'd be your last day. Yes. Yeah. Riot, R.I.P. There you go. Well, that closes out Acts 13, and I think with it, the battle of the sexes. So you guys are going to have to, uh, listeners, decide. Let us know, I guess, who won this battle. Yeah, We already know. You Clearly, the influential women of the city Yeah, exactly. The sex, so. You guys are just sitting over there looking so smug like you already have this in the bag. Listeners, we need your help. Um, you need their help. Oh, well, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do not only need your help. I'm going to have to agree with Stephanie on that one. <laughs> you know what? I'll tell you, I'll tell you guys what I need. I need more of those five-star reviews coming in from the iTunes store. We absolutely appreciate that. Whatever, whatever it takes, Justin. Exactly. Listen, it's super helpful for helping us uh, continue to grow the podcast when you leave those reviews. And it's crazy. You guys are so gracious with this. We got tons of them. They're super awesome. It pushes us up in the results. So when people search for the debrief, it makes it easier to find because it says, a lot of people like this particular podcast. So you guys are just helping other people just tap into this goodness when you leave that five-star review. So we appreciate it. Of course, we would love to get more of your tough questions from the Bible. Send those in to us, either at sandalsearch.com slash the debrief or look up the debrief Facebook page. Send us a message there. Uh, that'll do it. And as we close out today's episode, I think uh, Melody, Stephanie's given you the right to uh, bring uh, bring us out and close us out with one more inspirational quote. Yes. Well, I felt like um, last week I brought up Kanye when we were talking about Herod Agrippa yeah. acting godlike. Oh, yeah. Remember? Yeah. So I just felt inspired to bring a Kanye quote today. Didn't mm-hmm. he have like a big fashion so, show? Yes. Show, yeah. Yes. I didn't hear how that went. Well, this we'll is. It was, back it, went, it was great, man. It was the greatest. It was the greatest fashion show ever. Ever. Yeah. ever. Next week on greatest the thing ever. So this was. This is a, a deep quote from Kanye. Um, I wish we had mood music. Mm. My greatest pain in life boom. is that boom. I will never boom. be able to boom. see myself boom. perform live. Mm. We need to pray for him. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way about your sermons? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. He really said that. That's what the internet says. I believe it. You wouldn't like to see yourself preach at least once? No. (laughs) 
It's it would, his, it'd be too it's intimidating. It's his greatest pain in life. Yeah. It's deep. Then we need to pray for a little pain in his life. <laughs> That's the greatest pain. Well, My goodness. He is married that to a Kardashian. Good. Well done. Who is he married to? Kardashian. Kim Kardashian. Kim. Oh, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Prayers answered. Was that, a, was that an inspirational quote? Yeah. I like to think so. Uh, I, I guess if you're from New Jersey, 